This is the Enter Sad Men Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. So welcome to episode two of Enter Sad Men. Um, my name's Steve Davis, and my friends with me this evening are Mark Norman and Richard Napthine. We are El Tres Hombres, the men who will take you on a journey down Hard Rock's memory lane. Uh, the quest is to find a Hall of Fame from Rock's Golden Age, a bunch of albums we think any diehard rock fan should own or want to own. And the idea is that we review three on every episode. We've done episode one. Mark, seems to go very well. And um, what was the upshot of the three albums we looked at last time round? So, yeah, last week, I mean, it seems like only yesterday, doesn't it? Um, and what what three amazing albums that we um, that we talked about as well, weren't they? Um, talked about British Steel, uh, Van Halen's debut, and... ACDC's Highway to Hell, and it was a, a stonking episode, uh, even though we say so ourselves. Um, but you know, inevitably, as Steve you said last week, contractually obliged to score them. Um, so we're scoring them out of ten. There are no set criteria. It is based purely on our own individual assessments, and we don't collaborate uh, on the scoring at all. We score each track. And then we come up with an average score each for the albums. And then we add those three album averages together, divide by three, because there are three of us, to get the overall average score for the album. And I can tell you that Van Halen scored 7.66. Highway to Hell scored 7.73. And British Steel are the current, albeit possibly temporary, <laughs> occupants of the Gilded Throne in the Hall of Fame with 8.09 British Steel from Judas Priest. So there we go. Those are the three. Um, and uh, at some point after this podcast, we'll update the website as well uh, to show what the scores are. But um, chaps, does that kind of feel about where the album's should be yeah i've got a sense that that's probably well it's it pretty much reflects what i said i think i mean i did i yeah british steel was always going to be my favorite of those three um remember the criteria was it was the first album we bought wasn't it so not necessarily right. any great favor or anything like that but um you know that was what we were discussing the first three albums we bought and yeah not in the least bit surprised british steel was a was, was a massive album and it's um it's pretty illustrious company, but yeah, yeah, that's a fair one, two, three, as I see it. Do you agree, Richard? Yeah, I'm looking looking at how we score individually scored the album. Um, so British Steel was was a clear winner for Steve. You know, fair, you know, fairly out in front. It was pretty much neck and neck for me between Highway to Hell and British Steel, but British Steel just edged it. And again, I think one neck and neck for those two for for you, Mark, as well. But uh, well, you just Howard uh, Hill won by a nose for you. Um, and I think, yeah, it it, it it's you know we talked we talked last week about how um, it British Steel's accessibility, and that you have to perhaps try a bit harder with Judas Priest. But I don't know. I think it just reflects that. I mean, it, it it's just so so solid, isn't it? It is, and I think. Maybe as well, you know, as I said in in the show last week, you know, full disclosure, huge ACDC fan. Um, so 
probably not surprising that Highway to Hell edged it. But of course, it's worth saying as well, isn't it, boys, that it's not a competition in that sense. You know, this is this is about trying to work out, you know, what our opinion and view may be worth. It's trying to work out what the the kind of top 100, 100, well, I don't know how much we're going to get up to, but, you know, what are the top albums out there? And, and to try to put them into some sort of order to give it some sort of meaning. But it's not really a competition in that sense. No, and also, of course, it's very difficult to order the very best. And, and, and we're listening to albums, you know, pointedly because we like them and we bought them. You know, we love them for a reason. And, um, you know, we're going to see an awful lot of high scores throughout the, the, the very many weeks, hopefully, that we'll be doing this thing. Um, I dare say there'll be a duffer or two, when depending on what genre we choose for our um, for our respective episodes. But you know, we've started with the first album we bought. Tonight's episode is going to be, you know, notionally our favourite album. So you know, expect more sky high scores tonight. I would imagine. The great thing about this, of course, is that just because it might be my favourite album or yours, Steve, or yours, Richard, doesn't mean the other two are going to like it or like it anywhere near as much. But I know, Steve, for example, that my choice you had not heard either at all or in its entirety. So, you know, it, you could come to that and go, well, yeah, do you know what? That sucks. Well, the, the, the beauty of this is not only have I not heard your the album you've chosen in its entirety, I haven't listened to the album that Richard has chosen in its entirety either. So when I was doing my research for this, which, trust me, was a pleasure and certainly no pain, um, I was pretty much coming at these, you know, for the first time. I mean, and, well... You'll hear my views in a minute, but um, yeah, it was it was it was a treat, an absolute treat, and um, you know I look forward to sharing my views when the time comes. To start off these uh, these podcasts, I, th- I think the reason we chose these first two as the first two was just perhaps to give our audience a bit of a flavour of what we're about and uh, the stuff that's dearest to us. So um, lo- last week we obviously chose the first album that we bought with our own money. And uh, we thought it would be nice to follow that with um, what is our personal favourite album of all time? So that's what we've gone for this week. Um, So we'll tell no doubt a few more personal stories as we go through tonight. Um, And uh, to introduce those three now, um, they are Mark's Choice, which is UFOs, Strangers in the Night. Steve's choice is Van Halen's Women and Children First. And uh, my own choice is Moving Pictures by Rush. So we're now going to get into those with no further ado. And uh, as we will in every episode, we'll do these simply in chronological order. And that means Mr. Norman is first up to introduce UFOs, Strangers in the Night. Opening album sleeve notes. I should say at this point that if you are listening to the podcast and if you're in a position to do so, to get the most out of it, you might want to listen along with us. I was, I don't know, 16, 1981. Um, I had, I had a German, ex- I was on a German exchange that, that, and it was them to us. So they were, I uh, had a, a German school kid in the house and we were all going out to do an event uh to an event and uh i had been given a single 
um, which was the live version of Dr. Doctor from this album. And I was playing it in my room um, before we went out. And, and I just thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. And thought I, I need to find out, A, find out which album this version comes from. And now I need to buy that album. Um, and so I, I, nobody I knew knew which album this came from. It took me ages to find out. And then I went and bought it. And I put it on. And at the time, my, my grandfather had just died actually and my grandmother was living with us and um i uh, steve steve you've been to my house so that so you'll be able to imagine this right so i'm living in the dining room at my parents house we've cleared the table out my my grandmother has got my room um my room is covered head to toe in posters and pages from uh kerrang magazine in fact on the ceiling <laughs> above where my grandmother was sleeping was a picture of Blackie Lawless with his chainsaw codpiece, <laughs> which scared the living daylights out of her every time she woke up. But I had been moved downstairs into the dining room, which in a way was great because it was completely separate from the rest of the house. And I could play music really loud and not wake anybody up because there was nobody upstairs. It was a single story extension. Um, and I could I could stay up as late as I wanted to without um, without disturbing anyone. I could smoke without anybody knowing that I was smoking, and I just played this out. I, I seriously, guys, I played this album over and over and over again. There was a point where this album was never off my turntable, and it is. If if you if you kind of put me in a position where I could only ever listen to one album ever again this would be it and what are we now nearly 40 years on from when i first heard it um it it brings back a part of my life i don't i'm, I'm kind of always move forward kind of bloke right I, I always never look back if i can avoid it this is the one period in my life that if i could go back and live it again i would it was just a magical time when a perfect storm of great friends, um, girls who were interested in me, which you know was kind of a novelty and short-lived, um, and um, and a period when everything just in my life worked. So that combined with this, and this is an album that, and I th we will talk about this. This is an album that is all down to. Paul Raymond's keyboards and Michael Schenker's guitar. And you, you take, uh, and you know, Phil Mogg's lyrics, arguably, or his, his vocals, but it's really about the keyboards and the guitar. And it's just an almost perfect album. So that's why I chose it. And it's a live album. And it's a live album. I was going to say that's curious, isn't it? I mean, that, that, explain why i mean of all the of all the myriad albums out there and all the many many millions of high class studio albums out there you've chosen a live album as your favorite favorite album what is it about it i think it's partly to do with the balance of the album the way the tracks are lined up on it i think it's you listen to it now and you can hear the crowd but they don't dominate but you can you can sense that adrenaline within the crowd you can sense the energy of the band um, and you can 
you can hear a band that is a a live band if you listen to ufo studio albums they're not a patch on this they're they're, they sound quite weak quite thin um i love ufo i love their studio albums but they're not a patch on this and actually i don't know there's just they're tight they're tight as a drum and it it's just a an amazing listen from start to finish i think it's about consistency as well there isn't a duff track on this album and it never dips well you're not alone in um in in rating this i know i mean i've read many of the reviews of this album and there's it's it's amongst the highest rated of all live albums i mean not just hard rock but all live albums and i i come at this as a as, as someone who and, and we've had this conversation so many times before mark about i've never been a big fan of live albums i mean that's 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 always been my case it, to me it just it, it's almost like a band saying um, you couldn't be bothered to fork out the cash to come and see us. So yeah, have this. This is your second prize. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, and 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 then when you when you when you hear a live album, and it's a very good one. You you feel doubly cheated because now you're being reminded constantly of what a great show it was that you missed. So, um, and I just like studio albums more. I'm 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 I make no apology for that. I mean, if I want to hear a band play a song, I want to listen to the way they wrote it. You know, to be played in a studio. And also, there's no new tracks on a live album. And I, that's just me being picky. Production issues, but I guess a lot of fans think um, poor production is almost the charm of a live album. And you make the point that this one's been overdubbed, but not not excessively. I mean, there are some live albums which you know are, are so you know they almost seem they almost seem like they've done it in a studio. They've, they've been so well overproduced. But this is um, but th- this is this is not. I guess I mean in conclusion to all that, I guess the biggest compliment I can pay is that if this was my first taste of UFO. Um, then I would not be in any rush to go out and buy the studio albums from which they were culled, these tracks, because I'd be surprised if they could be any better. I absolutely fell in love with this, Mark, and I can absolutely see why it scores so highly with you. I I surprised myself. Well, I'm really pleased, actually, because it touched me, and it clearly has touched you as well, and that's that's just brilliant. I I think there are are two types of live album. One, back to your point about the... The quality of the recording, Steve. There are those bands that actually say we, we what, what we want to do here is try and capture the, as best we possibly can um, the essence of what we are, what we sound like when we're live, and they and they make sure they've got the right equipment, um, they've got the right personnel, the right people who know what to do in in the in the you know the initial recording and then in in the in in this this the mix the, the extra mixing and whatever that goes on in the studio and i think the, there are the, like you know, the, the, there are a few you know, live albums that really really stand out where they've got they've they've made that effort a lot a lot of a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of other bands at the other end of the scale you got people that sound like they, they've just they've just turned up at, a, at one of their own gigs with a cassette recorder um <laughs> And I think because of the, I, can't, I, I was trying to find in my notes, but um, they, they used I mean, they used a special uh, mobile unit, didn't they, to to record these shows? They recorded um, uh, a, a few shows, um, and then they they picked the, the the best of the lot. We we'll talk about the overdubbing or not uh, in a in a bit, perhaps, because the, the, there are there are no consistent stories about just exactly uh, what went on. No, um, no but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm the same. I think I think it's a, it's it's a it's a brilliant, brilliant 
live album. Uh, I I first heard Doctor Doctor from this album, um, and uh, that's what uh, got me interested in it. Where did I hear Doctor Doctor from this album? I heard it on a compilation album in I think 1980 called Axe Attack. Uh, it also had likes of I can't remember. It had Highway to Hell on it, and it had Make It Real by the Scorpions and Bomber by uh, Motorhead. Ktel Records in the UK wow. uh, released it, um, <laughs> and it was and it uh, yeah it, it 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 had a few tracks on it that widened my uh, knowledge. Uh, you know, because I was you know, at that time, but that I was really just starting to get into uh, metal and rock. And uh, yeah, this was one of those tracks. I thought, God, that's rather bloody good, isn't it? Mark, before you before you break in, break this album down and and have a look at a few of the tracks, um, can we talk Spotify here? Because it's oh. it's it's a very di- can they not sort this out? It's a very different running order, isn't it? Basically, in a nutshell, what you're talking about, Steve, is the fact that we've got a remastered version that has two different tracks. One of which purports to be the opening track from the yeah show yeah um, and 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 i think this is a there's a wider problem actually with, with remastering because w- why would you do that why would you take an album a pretend that a song that opened the show didn't open the sh- you know pretend that a song that opened the show didn't open it and replace it with something else so there's um the two tracks that make the remastered version are Cherry and um, uh, Hot and Heavy. And apparently, according to Spotify, Hot and Heavy opens the opens the show. It doesn't. The show yeah. opened with Natural Thing as per the 1979 release. And I don't understand this, this absolute, you know, kind of obsession that record companies have got with reordering uh, the albums. I, I get... Stick them at the end and and make them bonus tracks. Absolutely, you get that. I understand that you know you want to freshen up the products and you know hopefully drive resales. I, I kind of understand the commercial. You know, I understand the business side of it. But why why dick around with the running order? It drives me nuts because on <laughs> Spotify, if I want to listen to this album on Spotify, I have to individually pick the tracks because I can't listen to it the way I bought it. So, yeah, I, I don't get it. No, I'm glad it's not just me that feels cheated then. That's fine. No. Because it says, it, says, it says here that the, in order to put it onto the double album, um, they did rearrange the running order. Um, and it also says here that Mother Mary and this kids were re-recorded in the studio and then overdubbed with crowd noise. Yeah, and, and reports of that differ. And I, you know, I, I could firmly believe that that is the case um but then if you're overdubbing does it really you know <laughs> there's an argument that says does it really matter anyway mm. um but um yeah i mean let, should we deal with the elephant in the room actually which is that according to all of the kind of articles and stuff that i've ever read about this michael schenker um 22 years old 23 years old when he recorded this refused to go back into the studio to overdub and so the guitar work on this album if that's right and i've got no reason to believe it isn't given that the stories are consistent or reasonably consistent then this album is an accurate record of his guitar work 
on in that at that concert, those wow. concerts, mm. which is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but let's I mean let's talk about we'll, we'll kind of go through the the the, the, the tracks. I'm going to go through them one by one. But let's let's talk about the personnel and the songwriting for a bit, and uh, and kind of ally that to. I mean, do, first of all, do you guys agree that actually, what, you know, what are the strengths of the album? Not in terms of the tracks, but the strengths musically. For me, it's Schenker's guitar work and Paul Raymond's keyboards. What is it for you guys? Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad you mentioned it. And it wasn't just me who spotted it. And I, I think that there's, there's no greater illustration of that than, um, than Rock Bottom. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which is, which is just towering. And it's not, and it's not simply Schenker. As you say, it's, it's Raymond's piano backing for that solo, and it goes on. It's almost psychedelic. It's like yeah. being at an MC5 gig. He's got an old... Or you know what I mean, though? He's, yeah, just, he's just banging yeah. away. It's 11 minutes long. My sense is it could have gone on longer, shorter. Wouldn't have mattered. Because I get the sense that Schenker just tends to improvise uh, as it goes on. And I dare say Raymond would have matched him beat for beat, however long it had gone on. It's just epic. It's an epic journey, and 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 that the the, the the um the play between those two, which you as as you alluded to, you hear it on so many tracks. Yeah, phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. What really makes this stand out are, the, are those layers. You know, that the, the, there there's so many influences. You know, creeping in I mean, to, to Paul Raymond's um, keyboard work. There's subtlety, there's power, um, there's sensitivity, and you don't get that in many hard rock, well, albums, live shows. Mm. No, I, and and I think that's it, isn't it? It's it's um, I, I yeah, they they don't call Michael Schenker the Mad Axeman for nothing. I don't think the band ever knew what he was going to do in yeah. the show. You know, you, you kind of feel like they that they were just riding his coattails and. Yeah, Paul Raymond was gifted enough to be able to keep up. But I think it's it's also that I think what stood out for me, and though I probably didn't appreciate it at the time that I bought the album, was there's just so much light and shade in it. There's there's nuance and there's it's it's about pace. Yeah, so many of the albums that we know and love are about speed, and this is about pace. And I think I think yeah, they know when to take the foot off the gas, and they know when to go full throttle. Um, and they and and you feel I I don't know uh, for, as a listener, I feel like I'm just being carried on this kind of wave the whole time, and they 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 know exactly where to keep you. It's brilliantly done, and I also think it's interesting that this was Schenker's fire. I think well, was certainly one of his final performances. With the band because he left mid-tour um and didn't come back until 93 and they were never the same band again you know phil mogg might not want to hear this but were ufo in their pomp actually michael schenker's band well you're only as good as your guitarist aren't you and he and he was as good as they came so um especially in a hard rock band well the yeah. phil mogg's i mean phil mogg's phil mogg's voice is good isn't it i mean there's no two ways about it i mean songs like love to love and that there's some nice balladeering from the man but um it's yeah it, it's Schenker's vehicle isn't it without a shadow of doubt but um just because he's a phenomenal guitarist the, the number of solos I mean to, to take a, a track like Love to Love which is 
you know, it's quite a slow burner, isn't it? And dreamy and plenty of piano and synths. And you just think it's going nowhere. And then bang, just for the, for the last minute, you know, we just get another Schenker guitar sound that is far from mundane, far from routine, incredibly interesting. And um, there's, a, there's a whole plethora of them on here. And that's, you know, that's the hallmark of, hallmark of a, of a, of a high-class guitarist. But also the way it just, it just settles into the band. I mean, and also, of course, what, what you forget is um, when you come at this and you think, well, that's a pretty bog-standard hard rock band. But they've been around for a decade before Strangers yeah. in the Night came out, Mark, and they? So, I mean, they, yeah. they were definitely imbued in the world of, you know, late 60s, you know, prog. I mean, if you listen to their debut album, it's um, it's more of a, it's more psychedelic. Um, well, well, now we're, we're listening to Love to Love. Phil just sounds absolutely drunk <laughs> when he when he introduces this track. And if it, there, there were, I was reading back some of the stories. I mean, again, what, what what's even more amazing is they pull off the, this amazing musicianship, these amazing gigs, and they are absolutely half cut. Yeah. Um, on combination of booze and snow. I mean, there was a, a quote from um, <laughs> quote from Phil Mogg. You know, one quote was, "I mean, by the time we reached the gig, no one could actually talk." <laughs> and and uh, yeah, he, 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 talk, he talks about their um, boozing, and then he said, "He said, yeah, was Andy Parker mentioned this. He said, he said the intake was astonishing. Um, we'd have different types of booze for times of the day, for Christ's sake. There'd be white wine for the sound check, nothing too heavy, and then it would build up from there during the gig and afterwards. And then you'd be up till four in the morning, and then get up and do it all over again." Well, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure to listen to it for pretty much the first time through, and um, you know it, it, it may or may not alter my view on live albums, but it doesn't alter the view that this is a belter. <laughs> Simple mm -hmm. as that. Loved it, absolutely loved it. What, what, what's, it's going to be fascinating. I saw on your first listens. Then what? What? Which? So what? What? Before I ask you that, what, Steve? What? So which tracks did you know before you listened to it? for this title, so presumably Doctor Doctor. Doctor Doctor, and I knew Lights Out and I knew Rock Bottom, and I think that was pretty much it. Right. Um, and I, clearly I didn't know Rock Bottom in that form. I'd, I've no idea how long it is on the studio version, but um, you know, it clearly is not 11 minutes. Um, and those were the only ones I knew. So naturally drawn to those, I love Rock Bottom. I love this version of Rock Bottom, and it, it just kind of, does it edge? I don't know. The one that the one that really stood out for me, and and I've had it on a loop, is out in the street. I just adore it. I I just think absolutely adore it. It's um on this on the Spotify version. It, there's a kind of bread basket after about five tracks, which, as we now know, is not the order it was in, and it follows natural thing and comes before only you can rock me. And I just love that little trio together. And out in the street, I adore, love it. And if there's a weak spot, I know you're going to ask me, so I second guess you. I would have said Mother Mary doesn't doesn't do anything for me at all. Okay, interesting, Richard. Um, well, well, let's start with Mother Mary because I, I, yeah, I, I, it's um, it's one of my favourites, um, and in particular, I, I just love uh, Phil Mugg's voice in that track. Um, in this way, as we get, I, I kind of, I hope it wasn't over overdubbed. Yeah. I hope he really did sing sing that live, and you know, um, I, um, I I I struggle in terms of the what what edge edges that 
um, I, I think I, Doctor Doctor. It, it's still it, it's. I was thinking back to you know our last podcast and and the, the track you know the the, sta- the standout tracks for me um, like um, ain't talking about love and and highway tale and for me personally Doctor Doctor is 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 up there. It it, it, it I it was first UFO track I heard. Um, I never ever uh, tire of it. Um, I mean, for me, the, the the probably the the song that just doesn't quite reach the heights of the others for me. Um, I mean, it's there, there, there's a few that I feel like are, are, aren't as strong and they're kind of between. So I'm I'm a loser. Let it roll and uh, and this kids I think are the ones that that aren't aren't quite as as strong as as the others. But then you've just got you know there are just so many. So as you say, lights out. Um, rock bottom um you know out in the street um and they're just just some such really really strong songs um and i think it's because you really can this is this is an album you can just put on and listen all the way through i agree with that obviously i agree with that i think you know you can listen to that front to back and not skip a single track so what about you mark what's um i mean i'm guessing you're pretty much a 10 out of 10 man for the whole lot but um do you know what? I, I, I think um, coming into this show, not this particular show, into, into, into the podcast generally, um, I, I think there has to be, it has to be pretty special to score 10. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't, in the four albums we've reviewed so far, I haven't scored a single 10. And I haven't, you know, I haven't with this one. I kind of feel like don't make me choose because I love them all in almost equal measure. Um, I think it's a three-way tie at the top for me. Um, natural thing, because it's how the album opened, and I heard this album open over and over and over and over and over and over and over again to Natural Thing. Um, and there's that whole, which you don't get on Spotify, but you get on the album, which is, Hello, Chicago, would you please welcome from England, UFO. And the <laughs> crowd goes absolutely bonkers. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of have a a slight advantage there because that's how I remember that track. So that's automatically going to be a favorite doctor, doctor, obviously for all the reasons we've discussed Um, and love to love, which I just think is a perfect blend of ballad and hard rockiness. Really. Uh, I'm interested in what you said though, Richard about I'm a loser. I'm a loser is one of my favorite tracks on this album. And I think it's because I don't know, you, you know, we, we interpret songs in different ways, don't we, um, each of us? But for me, it's a it's a song about homelessness and fraternity and, yeah, and the fact that nobody's alone. So I think yeah, it's yeah. brotherhood. And I think it's beautifully written. I think it's quite moving. So, that, I mean, that, that sits, for me, along with Lights Out, just behind those other three. If there is a, a weak spot on the album, I think it's probably this kid's. But... Uh, you, you can barely get a piece of paper between any of these for me, but that—that's—that's that's only to be expected, isn't it? And I and I expect much of the same from the two of you when we move on to the next two. You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. Okay, so you've heard our collective outstanding views on uh, Strangers in the Night, um, and uh, we now move on to our second album of uh, this podcast remember this is all about our favorite albums of all time uh and uh, steve's 
is the third album released by Van Halen, and that is Women and Children First. So, Steve, take us back to when you bought this. Opening album sleeve notes. Well, I found this very hard to do, actually, specify a favourite album, because, like everyone, I've got loads and loads of favourite albums. And I'm also a firm believer that music is uh, is defined by the, what mood you're in. You know, music changes. And this has stood the test of time because it was released in 1980. But let's go back to our first sad night. When was that? 1995. Right. And what yeah. did we do for our theme? Tell us. We can't remember. We're no, old. that's what I thought. Exactly. It was the top 15, our favourite 15 songs. That was the point. And... Because I can't remember what I did last week, never mind what I did 25 years ago, I can't remember what my top 15 was. But hand on heart, I chose them then for the right reasons. And if I knew what they were, I'd probably agree that nine or ten of them would still be there now. But the point is that music changes, doesn't it? I mean, what was a favourite back then might not be quite so favourite now. So I'm looking for a criteria for my favourite album. Um, and the first yardstick I thought was not a duff track on the album. Well, again, I mean, I've got, I can list you two dozen albums that I've got that don't have a bad track on them in musical terms from everything like um, Outer Hand by Coney Hatch all the way up to Flotsam and Jetsam's Doomsday for the Seaver and, and, and loads in between. So what else? Still sounds great after many, many years. Well, yeah, this one ticks that box. Um, but the, th the big reason for me for choosing a favourite album is that it's got to take you somewhere. It's got to, it's got to stir your soul. And um, and if like you, if I look through my record collection, I mean my vinyl record collection, I can probably identify eighty percent of the albums where I bought them, what they meant to me at the time, and they've all got a story to tell. And that's where I stand with Women and Children First, which is yeah my favourite album. If you anyone who listened to the podcast last week know that I bought this when I bought Van Halen and Van Halen Two, bought them all at the same time. Um, as a part of a crash course before going to see Van Halen for the very first time in, uh, in 1980. So I bought it in the year of its release. Um, and the one thing, so, so what makes this album so special compared to the other two, if I'm a big Van Halen diehard, which I am, well, it's clearly very different. I think we'll all agree on that. Um, in fact, it's markedly different from its two predecessors. It's the same producer, Ted Templeman, um, and was released just 12 months after Van Halen 2. Um, but cast your mind back to what Van Halen and Van Halen 2 were about. They dished up um, what we now know as that kind of staple Van Halen diet of uh, hard riffs and uh, big rhythms, big solos um, and lashings of popcorn. I mean, that's what Van Halen were all about. Um, and this went in a, in a seriously different direction, Women and Children First. It's a lot harder. It's a lot heavier, a little bit more experimental. And to me, it just seems almost like a different band. I mean, obviously, you've got Eddie Van Halen's guitar, stands the test of time. David Lee Ross vocals will rarely sound different. But it just seems like a very different band to the first two albums. It's, as I say, it's heavier. Um, there's standard loads of breaks and interludes in it. There's all sorts of layers, loads of shades, damned heavy. And I was also looking at the albums that were, that were coming out in 1980 when this came out. Some of the big numbers, like British Steel that we mentioned last week. Um, on Through the Night, Def Leppard, Strong Arm of the Law by Saxon. And then you stand this next to those, and I love those albums, but this just seemed far more creative, far more eccentric, clearly just a, just a little bit more American 
and therefore there's that American feel to it. But the bottom line is, it's just, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's a work of art. It's, it, it's, it's Van Halen at their absolute best. And I defy either of you to disagree. This was the first time I'd listened to this album all the way through. Uh, again, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd heard various tracks from it before. But when I when I put it on and and really focused on it, it it sounded like they just went into the studio and did what the hell they wanted to. Uh, it, um, it it they uh, I guess I, I don't know, I, I haven't looked at the, the 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 history of the first two into this one, um, but obviously you know the you know, first two had sold pretty well. So I can just imagine that, 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 I mean, they were all done in fairly quick succession, weren't they? They went into the studio to record this and, and they essentially were given carte blanche. So I think the, the range of the tracks, some of the, you know, the, the, the stuff that's, um, that's going on into you know, the bits they, they put in, like the you know, tour of tour into loss, and control, loss of control, Dave Lee Roth's little chatting throughout that I think a lot a lot of which was improvised. They just they, they they just they just did what the hell they wanted for this album, and yeah, I mean it it, it was it, it was thoroughly enjoyable to listen to. Really, I really really enjoyed it. Do I? I think Van Halen first album, the one we reviewed in the last podcast, as I said, is still my favourite of theirs. Is this as good? I mean, I, I think do I like this say as much as 1984? Probably not. But this is an album done by a bunch of guys that were ruling at the time all they surveyed. And there were no shackles on them, were there? No, none at all. Yeah. Mark? Like Richard, this is the first time that I have heard this album all the way through. So a bit of context, um, partly for for Richard, actually, and partly for um, people listening. Steve and I trained as journalists together in in Hastings. and. the first time I'd, I'd got Van Halen, the debut album, bought that, but I didn't have any other Van Halen at the time. And Steve, you played me this and Fair... Well, you played me part of this and Fair Warning. And I think those are the only two albums that that I kind of heard really very early on. And the two tracks that you paid, played me from those two um, albums that I remember were Unchained from Fair Warning and and The Cradle Will Rock from this album. And you also played me Mean Streets, I think, from Fair Warning. But I'd, I'd never actually listened to this album all the way through. I'd heard bits and pieces of it. I dipped in and out. And I, I think that what I feel about this album is that for a young band, I think this is quite experimental i think it's quite brave and mm-hmm. um, I, I should think they drove their record company absolutely bloody mad because it's so different uh, in the same way that that van halen 2 and van halen are you know that they, they they go from doing you know on the debut album they go from doing running with the devil to ice cream man you know they go from on van halen 2 they go i mean a standout track for me on that is doa but they also got, um, I think I'm right in saying, somebody get me a doctor. And then and then on here, you've got, and the Cradle Will Rock, which is now now rocker, to the something really bouncy like Falls. And then and then you've got uh, In a Simple Rhyme at the end of it. And, and, and although it's 
it is my least favorite track on the album you know loss of control which in terms of musicality is is a world apart <laughs> from from anything else on the album and you, and it bounces from style to style there, you you cannot look um, listen to this album or indeed i would venture any of their first three albums and go yeah i understand what their sound is but that's what makes it unique and that's what made them distinctive in the market at that time and i think i think if you got it you got it but i think there will be people who listen to this album rock fans who listen to this album and go oh, i'm sorry i don't understand this i mean i i, I really yeah, really yeah, yeah possibly yeah i mean don't get me on to in a simple rhyme it's the reason i get out of bed in the morning i mean it, it it's just it makes my life it's just I, it's just it's an outstanding not, track and i'm not i, I not at all critical i, I didn't mean that but in a simple rhyme, I think I think it just this album shows their versatility and their breadth. Absolutely, um, it does. And, and I, yeah, you know, I don't. I actually actively don't like loss of control. I find it hard on the ear. It's very um, punky. It's very it it's, in, in an era of post punk. It is their punkiest. It's very short for one thing. It's um, yeah. I love the brevity of it. I just love the. It, it's an it's an assault certainly, but it's um, especially when side one. If you think about um, so we're looking listening to everybody wants some and the cradle will rock followed by this and then fools they're all quite chuggy they're all very um well they're at you and then romeo delight which carries on in that vein and then really picks up comes down again and then goes back up loss of control the start of side two it's um it's pretty manic and i really enjoy that element of it because i think and also if you consider where it is in the album then it becomes before the the, the wonderfully irreverent take your whiskey home and the the kind of and could this be magic which is if i was comparing it to anyone i mean it did it, 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 Bands did ballads. Van Halen yeah. did Could This Be Magic? You know what I mean? Th th they they did something completely different. If we're going to slow this thing down and just be different, well, you know what? We're just going to go off the scale to, to where no one had seen. You know what it reminds me of? A little bit, like, you think of someone like any, Anyone's Daughter by Deep Purple? That sort of thing. Yeah. It just looks out of place. But in yeah. this album, which is so experimental, as you both have, have alluded to, it just feels perfectly correct. It feels absolutely right. And apparently the story behind Could This Be Magic, if anyone doesn't know it, is Eddie Van Halen was in the slide guitar and he'd hardly ever played it before and was told to use it because it sounded good. And naturally he took to it like a duck to water because he takes to everything like a duck to water. <laughs> and um, it's a strange yeah. song. It's not my favourite off the album by any stretch. And then that comes to In a Simple Rhyme, which... As I say, I mean, you're going to hear the angels singing. It's just, it's just, oh, it, it, it makes my day, makes my night, makes my life. And to go back to what you said about this album being different, of course, it didn't have a cover version and it only had one single. The clues were there. And we're just listening to the opening of Falls now. And I, I, I defy you not to be bouncing to this brilliant song, my favourite on the album. And and it's also I think I'm right in saying, isn't it, that it's um it's the only Van Halen album that includes a female backing vocal. It it does. Well, I don't know about it's the only one, but this one certainly does. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think it's the only one. I, I I could be wrong, or maybe it's the only one to date to to the point of this album. No, I love I I love it. Uh, yeah, I really do. There there are bits I can leave. And actually, before we move before we go on and talk about you know the the, the tracks in any detail. So, Steve, you're kind of the resident Van Halen man in this podcast, unashamedly so. Torah, Torah, and the hidden track, Growth. Are they tracks? <laughs> Are they tracks? And I'm just thinking, from a scoring point of view, 
Yeah. Do, do you score Tora Tora, or is it actually the prelude to Loss of Control? Well, when they play it, well, it's interesting. When they play it live, they always play. They play it with loss of control. To me, it's one and the same. In the same way, the eruption was always played. I mean, nowadays because everything's digitalized and is therefore separate, they probably count as separate tracks. No, they're one and the same. It's an intro. It's still a nine-track album. Don't get me wrong, but you're only going to be marking eight if you get my drift. No, I do. I do. I, I just wanted clarity for scoring purposes. Yeah. I think trying to score Torah Torah, for example, very yeah, hard. Yeah, no, you couldn't, could you? you <laughs> couldn't, no. But it's, 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 it's part of the track. It's part of loss of control, and it's, it's the Kickstarter side too, and therefore it's an integral part of the album. They are a band that just don't want to do things conventionally, and that's what I really, really like about them. That, that Yeah, they're young. At this point in their careers, they know nothing, you know, about anything at all. And yet they are so full of confidence in their own ability, in their own sound, presumably in their own fan base, that they kind of give a two-finger salute to the record company and go, we're just going to do what we want. Yeah, You can tell us what you want us to do. You can tell us what you'd like us to be in commercial terms. But actually, we we will stand or fall on our music, and I I, I can't really respect that actually. And this 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 tour was apparently the first tour, and I was privileged enough to be there, as I said last on the on the first podcast. You know, I, I saw them at um, the Rainbow at Finsbury Park, and this was the tour where apparently the, it was the start of the new Van Halen, where they where they took this kind of music, turned into a massive show, and 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 just became huge box office. You know, they were a big deal anyway with the first two albums, but. Um, yeah, this took them. And what was interesting about it, having having got a formula right with albums one and two, to then do this and fair warning, which is you know by a by the narrowest margin, my second favourite album after this one. You know, these two are so very different, and um, especially when you go then into Diver Down, talk about the versatility of a band, um, and it's it, it's demonstrated beautifully in this. I managed to find uh, the Rolling Stone magazines. Uh, review of this album and if I was Van Halen reading this I'd think yep okay that hit the mark then <laughs> I'm not saying uh, well I'll, I'll just read it to you um, so here we go fans insist that it never went away critics wish it would but heavy metal that belligerent bastard son of American blues and macho English rock star attitudes is back it's also bigger, louder, and, hard as this may be to believe, better than ever, rising to punk rock's challenge by adding some new risks to the old riffs. And it goes on to various things, but other things it says. Van Halen toss melody, along with subtlety and good manners, straight out the barroom door. LAUGHTER Each features banshee guitars, hellish drumming, lead vocalist Dave Lee Roth's cries of hedonistic ecstasy, and ensemble harmonies that sound like the birds, B-Y-R-D-S, singing through a sewer pipe. (laughs) All violently competing for attention in in an explosive sound mix. But underneath the noisy chutz bar, Roth and his mob are exceptionally good players. Megalomania of this kind is an acquired taste, yet the haste with which women and children first bullied its way into the top ten suggests that there's a little Van Halen in everybody. 
That's brilliant. Amen to that. Is this, Steve, the album that really cements the importance of Michael Anthony? Oh, again, very much so, in so many different ways. I mean, Richard alluded to it last week when we were talking about Van Halen, about the importance of the um, of the engine room of this band. I mean, because, you know, the, the, the two front men get all the plaudits, and rightly so they are, you know, super show-offs. But what Michael Anthony and, and Alice Van Halen, the drummer, what they do is, um, yeah, it's phenomenal. He's a very good bass player um, anyway. And also, I mean... You know his 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 vocals. Uh, uh, I mean, again, I go back to in a simple rhyme. The, the vocal harmony is in that to die for, and he's he's a you know he's, he's a key member of that. Um, yeah, as good a bass player as you'll come across, and um, you know, perfect for the band, absolutely perfect. It drives, doesn't it? And and you need a good bass player to drive it along. I mean, I think I'm still right in saying that nobody needs a bass solo in their in in their life, though. <laughs> okay, Steve, talk us through some of these tracks. Come on. Well, yeah, as I say, I mean, the only singer was down the cradle will rock, um, which was the opening track and many people's, many Van Halen fans idea of a, of a favourite song, but uh, it's hard to pick them out in this album. It just chugs along at a really good pace. Everybody wants some is um, you've got, you know, Roth doing his sort of Tars and the thing along with Van Halen, Alex Van Halen's jungle drums for company and then the big chords gradually builds and builds and then lifts off. Fools, which, as you mentioned, is that riff to die for. And then Romeo Delight rounds off side one, which is, um, oh, it's just an awesome track. Four minute track. It's got about eight different chapters in it. It's, it's just it's just a brilliantly written piece of music. And then side two, as I say, with those two, you know, almost curios, take your whiskey home and could this be magic? Where, you know, Dave's doing his drunken ramble doing, during take your whiskey home. But as ever, when the time's right, it crashes into another beast of a riff. Um, could this be magic? You've got the slide guitar. It's it's kind of it, it's almost an unplugged old time bit of music call, but it just showcases their their musicianship. And then, well, in a simple rhyme, I, do I need to say any more? It's um, what I love about in a simple rhyme is it's the closest thing I think to heartache in Dave Lee Roth's voice. You know, it's almost a love song. And the, the vocal harmonies, as I've mentioned before, are to, just to die for. And it's a little journey into sort of Diamond Dave's soul. And I just never tire of listening to it. And that just rounds off a, a seriously impressive piece of work. You bought this when you were 15? Uh, 1980, yes. And you fell in love with it immediately? I did, absolutely. I fell in love with it more than the other two Van Halen albums, which I bought at the time. And as, and as I went back, as I said right at the start, you know, one of my criteria for, for what is your favourite album, and I'm sure you'll agree, it's got to stand the test of time. I've never stopped listening to this. You know, I've never put it down and left it for a while. It's just one of those albums that I go back to regularly um, and, you know, will continue to do so. I'm never tired of listening to it. I'm just, I, the, the reason I ask that is I'm not sure that at 15 I, I had the appreciation to be able to embrace that so many different styles I, th I think that's that's really interesting because i think if i'd heard that at 15 i would have struggled with it well i'm not saying i'm not saying i did i just loved it that's what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> i'm not no, saying no. i appreciated the nuances of it either but i just no, no, loved no. it but i'm not sure i would have loved it i think i would have found it i think at 15 i would have found it a hard listen okay in, in a way that i wouldn't i don't now having been exposed to you know 40 years and and however many 
magnifications of albums beyond that. Um, some good, some bad, some downright awful and some brilliant. I think compared to um, this, Van Halen, the, the debut album, was a much more consistent listen. I think it was a much more predictable. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I... I don't think they ever lacked consistency in anything they did, but I mean, certainly one and sorry, one was about Van Halen and two were both very consistent. Sorry, can I just point out to, to to anybody listening to this that that you ripped me a new one for referring to the first album's Van Halen one last week. Sure. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on my third glass of Santa Medion. It's just um, <laughs> I've turned into Phil Mogg. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I just just like to point out that I have never referred to this to their first album as Van Halen One. <laughs> I apologise. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. I'm heading for the naughty step. So, loss of control is now in my ear, and 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 I find this re- a really hard listen. I don't know how you find it a hard listen. I just don't know that it, it's it's stepped up a tempo. I get that. Oh no 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 no! It's 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 breathtaking. It's just it just hits you like a you know to quote another band. It just hits you like a ten ton heavy thing. Can we <laughs> can we bring in the ringmaster then the the referee? Um, come on, th- these tracks that we're discussing, Richard. You know, loss of control. So, loss of control absolutely typifies the the fact that on this album. They were they were just let off the leash, yeah. It's a loss of control, yeah. By by Warner Brothers, the studio, and everybody else. This track typifies the fact that they were doing what the bloody hell they yeah. wanted. Aerosmith. Um, so I think, yeah, exactly. I think it is. Yeah, it. it I, I understand what you're saying about it being a hard. I mean, it, it's just it, it's all over the place. I mean, I, I'd love to know how much of this song was improvised. Mm. Because there's, 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 there's actually quite, I mean, there's quite a lot of improvisation, you know, that that that, that goes on. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, the, you know, everybody wants some some of the the, the drums and the the, the vocals that's, that are in that were ad libbed. Um, there's other um, the moonbeam line in everybody wants some. Um, it's, it, 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 was the original lyric was, I've seen a lot of people looking for a moonbeam. That's right. Dave's yeah. got it completely wrong and just went, I take a move, a lab, I look you, boy, I move. That's right, that's right. It's just gibberish. And it's as if they, they, and they kept all that in. It, it, yeah. This is, you know, it, well, question, you know, it, name another rock album that's more improvised. Well, I'm going to have to think about that. Is there an answer? We'll come back to it when I talk about moving pictures in a bit. I mean, there were... You know, there were elements of that that were improvised, but but that was just that you know, in a particular take, they did one of them did something a particular way, but a lot of it, moving rest of moving picture was 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 very you know incredibly well written and 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 and, and really well structured and you know, brought together uh, and really composed. Let's go away and and think about it, but I I can't think of a certainly when I when I listened to this all the way through that's what struck me that they really were just off the leash and they tried things and they were allowed to do it and they kept it I agree with Mark that after the you know, Van I'd say Van Halen one and, and two were a lot more sort of structured controlled they were they yeah. were working within a within a framework this they're just 
they're 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 off. They're doing what the what the hell they want. And I don't know, Steve. I mean, you're the you're the Van Halen expert in in the albums that follow with Diver Down and Fair Warning. Whether that they came back, you know, they 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 were brought back onto the lead. Obviously, by the time we got 1984, was incredibly commercial, and you can tell yeah. that that had some real planning behind it. Yeah, um, well, fair, I mean, fair fair warning was was by any measure a continuation of this rather than the two that went first. But it, yeah. it, there's more control, there's certainly more structure. By diver down, they'd almost given up the will to live, and they just chucked out a load of cover versions and just had fun. And then by 1984, as we all know, you know, rifts were evident, and um, you know that was their farewell. Clearly, not Van Halen's farewell, but the farewell with David Lee Roth involved. So so what, what they did here was never going to be a template for anything else because, well, it couldn't be, could it? Because it was just a one-off. Um, and it, and I think it will always stand up as as a really unique bit of work, incredibly eccentric. Um, and as you say, to, to be able to give them the license, to be able to be given the license to do this, you know, very few bands would have had that, would have enjoyed that freedom. And boy, did they enjoy it. Eccentric is a very good word for it. Yeah. <laughs> Are they off the leash because Van Halen and Van Halen 2 did so well that the, maybe the record label trusted them? I'd love to have been in Ted Templeman's head when he, he sat down with the band prior to going to the studio and kind of listened to what they got. Did he think, wow? Or do you think, how the hell am I going to pull this together? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're very, they're very powerful personalities, aren't they? The band, Templeman's clearly an extraordinarily gifted man. I don't know. I don't know how the chemistry worked. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was amazing that they were given this license. Um, I think, but you know, it, they, they, uh, they killed it, nailed it. Mm. See, I, we, we, we're kind of listening, listening to. Um, uh, could this be magic, aren't we? It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and th this is almost a kind of a 1930s speakeasy. Mm. You know, that, that's where I am listening to this. I just, I just think, you know, you, if you are the the president of, um, I can't remember who they were, which label they were on now, Warner Brothers, wasn't it? If, you, if you're the yeah. Warner Brothers um, president and you, you've got the first kind of mixes of this, have you got your head in your hands or have you gone, Wow, this is something special. I, I, how do you call this? No, no, no. You, you absolutely don't. You're right. No one's. You couldn't see this coming from the end of "Take Your Whiskey Home." You, yeah. You'd never. Have, I mean, you know, we often can't foretell what comes next in in anything that David Lee Roth does. Um, you know, we saw it with with Van Halen when um, you know the, the the positioning of Ice Cream Man. But this is. Um, it, it's a lovely piece. I mean, it really is, and it's again, it shows a different side to Eddie Van Halen. I mean, you know, great guitar work, and Roth plays guitar on it as well. He plays the acoustic, doesn't he? Oh, does he? I didn't know that. Mm. So I, I, I think I would say two things. One, is, one is you have to know your your work in order to break the rules. So you need to know what the rules are before you can break them. And I think Van Halen do that brilliantly. And clearly, they are very, very clever musicians, all of them. And, and the other thing I would say is that I have absolutely thoroughly enjoyed discovering this album again because that it has been surprising i've been away from it for so long and like i said i've only heard it in bits and pieces i, I don't i've ever listened to it all the way through and it's been such a joy to discover 
to be surprised because you don't know what's coming next. You listen to some bands. You know, I put on an, an ACDC album. I pretty much know what I'm going to get, you know, mm. it, it's it, which is not to denigrate them. They, they've got a formula, you know, and uh, was, it, was it Angus said, we, we, we've played the same song 400 times just with a different chord order, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and there's a kind of an element of truth in that. But if you're listening to this for the first time, you have no idea what's coming next. And I love that. I really, really, really enjoyed it. So what are your highs and lows then, Mark? I, I, I've scored and the cradle will rock and falls equally. And my next favorite was everybody wants some. And I think that's largely because I just, the, the, the great thing about listening to Van Halen is that they always give you a laugh and that's the track that makes me laugh. Yeah. So yeah. Um, my low point, cause I know you're going to ask me that. Um, it I won't think come I know the answer is. <laughs> won't come as any surprise it's loss of control i just it, it's just too it's too different and maybe that says more about me than it does about the band rich the credible rock is still my favorite of of this album uh, i think it, it's a brilliant way to, to start an album i didn't realize that, that the um I, I always thought that the opening is actually you know eddie um, it's not. It's it's uh, they they played a Wurlitzer electric piano through a, a hundred watt Marshall turned up to eleven, <laughs> highly distorted piano, yeah. and, it, and again it gets, uh, that's so oh yeah. Tell you what, why don't we do that? Let's stick an electric piano through a Marshall, turn it up to maximum, and see what that sounds like, and open an album with it. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? And then I, I think for, I mean uh, uh, they pretty. It's pretty. Um, pretty consistent. I mean, consistent, really. I, I mean, I, then, then, I mean, not far behind. I've got, you know, everybody wants some brilliant. But then I do love "Take Your Whiskey Home" and "Could This Be Magic." I just yeah. think they're just, just great songs to uh, uh, to listen to. And then, and then, and yeah, I mean, nothing really. I mean, then, then, sort of, you got the next level of sort of got you know, fools lost control in a simple rhyme. So yeah, yeah, it's been yeah a real, real joy. And I think if anybody listening to to this podcast, who either one, if if you have listened to um, Women and Children first before, and you're going, hmm, I'm not sure, have a listen again. Yeah, um, just have, yeah, go absolutely. go and listen to it again. And and anybody who hasn't listened to it before and is interested in doing so, from what we've talked about, is. Find yourself a quiet space and just listen to it in a, for a few times and immerse yourself in it. Well, some some albums take more than one listen. We're about to come to a Rush album, so some albums take more than one listen to to, to, <laughs> to, to fully understand. I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah. With it. But um, this is this is this is certainly one of them. You know, we're just coming to the end of In a Simple Rhyme, which um, I'll give it ten out of ten. Um, simple as that. It's. Um, and that just just peaks just just trumps a couple of nine and a halfers. And if if there's a low point, and I don't think there is, it's possibly take your whiskey home. But you know, how can you have a weak link on a favourite album, which has got no duff tracks, which is one of my criteria. And there you have it, women and children first. You're listening to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're talking loud. We've dealt with Strangers in the Night. We've dealt with uh, Women and Children First by Van Halen. So. Coming on to the third and final album of uh, this particular 
uh, edition of the Enter Sadmen podcast, and it's Richard's uh, favourite album of all time. And just for a bit of context, um, it's he he's chosen Moving Pictures by Rush. Now, my first encounter with Rush would have been when I was probably about fourteen. Um, and uh, they were a band that I really felt I ought to have in my record collection. And so I did a bit of research and discovered that the album that everybody thought was the best Rush album of all time was 2112. And um, I'm sure Richard will tell us whether people still think that's the best album of all time, clearly not his, but whether generally that's what Rush fans think. But I I, I couldn't get on with it at all. I don't to this day, I still don't understand it. Um, uh-huh. and, I, and I'm terrified of the fact that I know I'm going to have to listen to it again at some point in order to yes, do you the will. Yeah. Yes, you will. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I abandoned Rush. I kind of went, no, that definitely is not for me. And so for a long time, until probably sometime in 1995, early, probably Easter 1995 or thereabouts, when uh, I met Richard. And Mate, you played me. I think the first album you played in its entirety by Rush was was Counterparts. But you played me the second track of this album. You never, and I, I don't understand to this day why you didn't, but you never played me this album in its entirety. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Moving Pictures by Rush. Richard, why is this your favourite album? Opening album sleeve notes. I just fell in love with this album when it came out and I will just go back to it again and again and again. And it's a bit like you said earlier, Mark, for Strangers in the Night, if 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 I've only got the one album to take to a desert island to listen to the to for the rest of my life, this would be it. What these three guys put together on 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 this album in these um seven tracks, I just think is absolutely phenomenal. The, the songwriting, the musicianship, um, and actually, if you you you, know, you you hear about what they thought about it and, uh, and and how they were feeling at the time, they they felt this was the album where everything came together. And above all, they had fun doing it. They really enjoyed uh, recording this, and I just, I, I just think it's it, it's just absolutely incredible. I was fourteen when I first heard a track off this album. It's amazing what you can find on the internet, but I managed to track it down. That I the date I first heard Red Barchetta and Limelight was the 30th of January 1981. <laughs> it probably would have been about 10:30 or 11 o'clock p.m. It was a Friday. I was listening to Radio One in my bedroom, and Tommy Vance. Um, announced that uh, Rush were about to release a, a, a new album. I mean, the, the album itself, I think it was released on the 12th of February, uh, uh, so a couple of weeks later. And um, and he played uh, Red Barchetta and then Limelight. And those two tracks just blew my mind. I'd heard, yeah, I'd heard bits of Rush before, and I quite liked them. I'd, I'd heard bits of 2112, obviously I'd, I'd heard Spirit of Radio off uh, uh, Permanent Waves, a previous album. And, um, but I, I, was, I wasn't listening to the Friday Rock Show to listen to, to, for, for, for listening to Rush. I was just listening to the Friday Rock Show because that's what I did every Friday. 
And yeah, uh, um, th th these Reposhetta and then Limelight came on and, and it just blew my mind. And then as, as soon as soon as the album uh, came out, uh, I was down to Andy's Records in Cambridge again and, and picked up uh, and picked up moving pictures. And yeah, I've, I've played this album over the years more than anything else. I'll take it to my grave, please. When I'm when when they lay me in the coffin or they wheel me into the uh, the to, to set me on fire, just uh, just lay a copy of this on vinyl on my chest, will you? Rich, what stands it apart from its predecessors then? Because clearly you're a Rush fan, I know that. But why did this why did this hook you so much more, say, than either of the ones before it? So first off, yeah, represent a limelight, right? Buy the album, and then and then. You put put this album on for the first time, and Tom Sawyer comes on. The balance of the the the, the tightness that every note is where it needs to be. You got three unbelievable musicians at the peak of their powers. I mean, they just they just come off big tour. Um, they were having such fun playing. They then spent the summer of the previous year. Uh, at a farm just practicing and noodling and putting stuff together and um, they said how easily the parts of this album came together they on this they wanted to push themselves you know sort of technically as well I rate all three of them massively as musicians I mean you I mean plus of course you two know I'm, I'm I attempt to play the drums and Neil Peart's drumming on this album is just absolutely immense just faultless um and yeah, i think the, the best drumming performance on an album ever i mean he said when he when he finished drumming the tom sawyer track his hands were red and nearly bleeding so yeah it, it's I, I love the songwriting the musician it it all comes together it, it's uh, i i just love it absolutely love it it's the joke. It's the joke, Rich, isn't it? Um, how many how many drummers does it take to change a light bulb? Five. One to screw the bulb in, and four to talk pontily about how much better Neil Peart would have done it. Because, <laughs> because he, he is he is legendary, Richard, isn't he? And um, you know, I could play devil's advocate and say he's a timekeeper, but he's anything but, isn't he? He's so much more than that. Yeah, of course, we're doing these podcasts. You know, just not. Not long after he he passed away, and I mean it was a you know I I messaged you both the morning I found out because it made me incredibly sad. The first thing I did that day when I found out was I went upstairs and I stuck this album on. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that stands rush out for me is the three of them were always learning. I mean they, they we're going to talk about some of the tracks in detail, but I mean they, they were. On, on Vital Signs, for example, um, the, the closing track on Moving Pictures, um, they were drawing their influences for that from bands like The Clash and The Police. They're co constantly sucking stuff in and, and learning it and, and trying out new things and then and then putting it down on record. He's a perfectionist. He, he always wanted to be the best he could possibly be. And, and he, he just loved what he did. You can hear those influences as well. I thought maybe it was just me, but you listen to Vital Signs and you can hear you know, the police in that, and you can hear the clash in it. And actually, if you listen to the whole album, you can hear all sorts of different influences. 
in it and i i think it's um i think it's one of those albums which is just the soundscape in it is is just awesome awesome it's one of those albums you have to listen to more than once isn't it without a shadow of a doubt because there's so much there's so many different things it's, it's it i mean to call them prog would be would be to simplify oversimplify it mm. but there's a, there's an awful lot going on it was it was a pleasure for me it was coming to me fresh to me that was a real treat and i, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to this so much enjoyed it but i was aware of the myth of of Neil Peart, the legend of this phenomena that is Peart, and found myself on, on one of my listens, you know, just listening to him and what he could do. And, and that's not just a rhythm section, is it? It's, um, it's a musician of the highest caliber. I mean, it cast, it, it, it took my mind back to when my, my boys play classical, like when they were younger, they used to play classical guitar. And every now and again, you'd go to kind of one of those um, regional musical soirees where, where the kids of the district would show off their classical music talents. And I'd be, you know, full of pride that the boys were sitting there playing the guitar. And you'd look at the programme and you'd see there'd be a drummer and your heart would sink when you think some local kids now about to absolutely flatten a drum set with no sense of anything. And now I know no sense of light, shade, volume control or anything. Now, Rich, I know that your boy is learning to play the drums. And I'm guessing with you, as a guiding light and the fact that um, you're such a rush man that you'll see him right. You'll, you'll, you'll send him down the Neil Peart path of, um, of drumming. Put it this way. I'd, I'd have, I'd, I'd watch, well, I would have watched sadly Peart, you know, performing a solo drumming masterclass. Cause um, he just, he just took it to a different level. He, he just, he just played it like an instrument, not just a time keep. I think that, yeah, I think that's the thing. Um, and, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm desperately trying not to, I could talk for hours about him, as you both you both know, and I have to you both uh, <laughs> for hours in the past. Yeah, they always they always said at a Rush concert, Rush is the only concert when people do not go to the bar during the drum solo. In, in the prep for this album, and that, I mean they were really excited. You know, yeah, Alex Lyson was saying that everything really flowed and electricity was in the air. They feel it's actually. A, a very optimistic album. They had a really good feeling about it. I mean, it was you know, recorded at the at the the back end of, uh, of of 1980. We talked about Van Halen and them clearly just doing what the hell they wanted to do on um, uh, Women and Children first. The same is is true of Rush here. Um, this is an album where a band has got complete creative freedom. They've come into the studio. They're just going to create something very very special. But they knew what they were doing. They didn't busk it. I mean, it's 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 brilliantly written. Can I ask you a question? How many? Just take a wild stab. How many tracks? How many songs? Rock songs? Do you guys think you've listened to over the last 30, 40 years? Thousands. Fair enough. A thousands. Yeah. Well, clearly yeah. thousands. Oh, yeah. thousands. How many times have you heard the same riff by a band or the same st- song structure? Roughly. Every, I mean, every time I listen to Motley Crue. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> I didn't necessarily have the crew in my head. I mean, I love the crew, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but, you know, there's an awful lot. In this genre, there's an awful lot of painting by numbers. Everything about this band is unique. Whether I uh, Here's an interesting thing. I, well, at least I think it's interesting. Whether I like the song or not, I find it interesting, fascinating. The well, way- they are. There's a, there's a there's a there's a real kind of ingenuity about them, isn't it? I mean, I look at some of the um, I look at some of the songwriting, Rich. Which you know, you think about the inspiration for a rock band to go out and write a song. You know, have a curry, 
have a few beers with your mates, chuck a telly out the window, and then write a riff. And then you look, and I don't know whether these are, I, I don't know how, much, how these are apocryphal, you'll probably tell me more. Red Barchetta, based on a futuristic short story about the evolution of driving. YYZ, based on the rhythms of letters tapped out in Morse code. I mean, we're not talking motorhead here, are we? The camera eye, <laughs> apparently, based, apparently based on Neil Peart's recollection of events and rhythms while out on walks in London and Paris. I mean, this is quality stuff, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're, they're a thinking man's band. I, th I think if you take something like 2112 and some of the earlier Rush stuff, um, they, were, they were using interesting time signatures there. And you could tell it was, you know, I think the, the, the criticism of some of, of Rush will be actually they're just, you know, okay, they've, they've decided, oh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm going to use, um, you know, seven, eight time just because it's clever. What I love about this album is they are using different time signatures, but it's not it's not because it, they're they're trying to be clever. It, it, they're, they're, the, the, the songs still work. They don't jump. You don't suddenly think, oh, this isn't working for me. They flow. But but and it, but it's in there. There's different time signatures that that that, that make it um, uh, you know, make make it interesting. I mean, you know, limelight beat you know, three beat bars four beat bars it it just really works you know in terms of the album itself i think that the those the four tracks on on side one that is the just the most amazing side one of an album ever i mean limelight was written uh, the lyrics of limelight you know, by neil because he was really really struggling to come to terms with fame you know, fans following them around, trying to find where their hotel rooms were. They had to hire security guards. And he said, look, I, I, I just want to play to be good and to be the best I can and enjoy it. That this isn't what I signed up for. Is that the most, almost the most perfect song ever written? It's, it's a, a highlight of the album for me. And I know what you mean. Is there a wasted note? No, no, no. There isn't a wasted note. The, the Geddy Lee's voice becomes an instrument. It's percussive. Unlike most songs in in this very wide spectrum of music that we're talking about, that song moves me in a way that very few do. It's very personal. But it's not just that. Actually, it, it's it's the song structure. It soars and it's orchestral. The first time I heard it, so I when I first listened to this for the for, for this podcast. I didn't get past Limelight for four goes. I went back and played it again and again and again because I, I just think it is, it, it's virtually perfect. Alex Lifeson has said about his, um, the, his guitar solo, he, he wanted to create this sort of rather haunting singular solo to match the feeling of the, of the lyrics. So again, I think the, 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 they were really think, thinking about what the song meant if you, if you go back and listen to that 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 solo on on limelight, it, it's showing the the yes, loads of people want to be famous, but actually for some it can be quite lonely. But if you go back and listen to it in the chorus of limelight, his voice hits the beats where you expect the drums to be. It's really clever. Now I'm assuming that's planned. I'm assuming it is all a grand Peart plan, but that that it's punctuated by his voice in a way that normally you would expect the drums to be there and they're not. 
is it's the voice that does the punctuation. I think it's an astonishing track. There's a purpose to everything they do, though, isn't there? There's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing done by chance. I mean, I go back to again what you said earlier, Rich, about the idea that a lot of this stuff was kind of you know unscripted in a musical sense, but they're just too professional for, to, to to miss opportunities. Every every song, for example, was written with a reason in mind, wasn't it? I mean, and how how they approached it from then on. I mean, I look at a track like Red Barchetta, for example. I, I I don't even know what a car. I don't know anything about cars. I didn't even know it was a car. But now, having known that it's a car and listening to the track, I mean, you can almost hear the motor running. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It's um, and you think about the way that it, the way that the track tails off, which is beautiful in itself, and you get the sense it's it's almost like a lovely warm summer's night, and you're waving them farewell as they sort of drive off into the sunset. I mean, it's um, there's nothing nothing by chance with this thing. Um, you can feel the wind in your hair, can't you? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Was it Peer and Lifeson? Was it Peer? I mean, was was he a hugely dominant character in, in, in the writing of all the songs? They always generally give the the music credits to Lee and Lifeson and uh, Neil Peer gets the lyrics. Okay. As it stands, that they 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 jam together, they they write it together. And if there's one thing I'm sure it's not Alex or Geddy telling Neil how to play his drums. <laughs> no. They'd known each other for, for so long. They're so comfortable working with each other. You know, you need to get me off the subject of Rush. You remember last week I said that Rob Halford was a bit of an acquired taste. It, it, he wasn't immediately easy on the ear. Would you say the same is true of Geddy Lee? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 yeah he's, it, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and again, back to this album, he he consciously, with for this album, tried different vocal styles. He dropped his voice in terms of you know an octave. He he tried a speaking singing voice for some uh, tracks. So again, I think this is probably why this this album is more accessible to some. Uh, but yeah, he certainly. I mean, a lot of people do find his re his, his high pitch and reedy voice just a a, a little uh, too much to take sometimes. Once you get the music, you get the you 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 understand it. Um, the other thing that I just wanted to pick up on is the beauty of this band is that every song is a story. You go through the albums that they're every song that I can kind of immediately bring to mind, regardless of which album it's on. They're telling a story. There's there's actually a narrative to it in a way that, you know, Motley Crue, it, 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 it's about is about orgasms largely, and and ACDC is about beating around the bush in various forms. But for Rush, they're spilling their autobiographies onto the the, the album, aren't they? Really, we're being very unfair on Motley Crue, Mark, aren't we? Because we know we know full well that Too Fast for Love is going to be on our is going to be in our hall of fame. <laughs> Uh, do you know what? I have absolutely nothing. <laughs> I, I, I say that with love, you know, um, yeah, exactly. because there's a place for it. There is absolutely a place for it. And, you know, I, 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 I'm there with, with Tommy Lee's titty cam every day of the week. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong. But um, but it's not deep. It's not going to make you it's not going to make you reevaluate your view of the of society, is it, Motley Crue? Whereas Rush, actually, whether you do or you don't, there is at least the potential to do that. Yeah, I love what you're talking about story writing because we're now listening to um, to Witch Hunt, Rich, which is um, I love this intro. It's very dark. 
it's um again it's it's not it's not done by chance is it that they've they've, they've worked on this and they've they've sampled sounds from outside a building or something i can't remember what the story was and um yeah they, they all went uh they all went outside of the studio some of them half drunk um to uh, create the angry mob sound at the beginning that's it um, yeah. and, and actually and, and after a few takes just ended up falling over laughing Interestingly, it's I wouldn't say well no I wouldn't I'm going to say it it's it's probably the the, the, the it's, it's not a, the weakest track it's the, it's the track if I was marking everything out of ten it would be the lowest mark doesn't make it a weak track probably because it doesn't ta- it doesn't go as dark as I thought it probably was going to it seemed to it seemed to have more air it seemed to have more menace about it at the start and then just never really happened yeah I know what you mean because because it, it, it yeah it kind of t- takes off and soars in the in the second half. Yeah. Um, point of trivia for you: What links "Witch Hunt" by Rush and "Fat Bottomed Girls" by Queen? Is it the drum, Phil? Yes, the drums were recorded twice. Is that how Roger Taylor got the drum fill on "Fat Bottomed Girls"? Yeah, it's a bit, the, the reason the reason the big drum fill on "Fat Bottomed Girls" is so big. Yeah, it's played twice, once on top oh. of the other. Oh, do you know? I wish you'd never told me that. I'm disappointed now. Thought the man was a genius, but actually, he was just a double recorder. They played it twice. They played the track twice. It's, it's, it's not an editing thing. They actually deliberately knew there were going to be slightly, you know, and essentially, you know, the, there are there are four sticks hitting drums instead of two. I'm I'm fascinated to know what what you think in terms of the the highs and lows of this. Well, before before you do that. Um, Rich, can we just talk about um, vital signs? There's, there's absolutely nothing predictable in this album whatsoever. But I just did not, in any way, shape, or form, expect vital signs. If I'd have predicted a track to come at number seven, it just wouldn't have sounded at all like that. The reggae influence in it is—is is that the first time, the only time? It's a brilliant song. They, they were listening to really wide range of music and get influences all over the place. And in particular, they—that's they, they were particularly interested. Uh, and influenced by by the police and, and uh, um, what they were doing particularly with, the, with their reggae influences and no doubt there's a connection between Neil Peart and, and Stuart Copeland in terms of drumming. If you then go on to listen to the subsequent albums, I mean, Signals was the, was the next album and then Grace Under Pressure followed that there's more of Vital Signs. So Vital Signs almost pointed the way to where their musical direction was was going. And again, I mean, you know, this was, this was the first album where they, they used synthesizers pretty heavily. You know, one of the funny jokes was Geddy Lee was, um, was nominated for <laughs> following the performances on this album as the, one of the, the best new keyboard players. <laughs> so, highs and lows. Steve. Well, yeah, well, um, on, on pure numbers, I, I gave, I liked Limelight and Red Barchetta pretty much. Couldn't really separate them. And I'd take you at your point, Rich, about side one, given that I've effectively written off Tom Sawyer. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, but it, it's a, it's, it's a brilliant side. And and if if I had a if I had a weak link, as I say, um, it would be Witch Hunt, um, but. It's all relative. It's not weak. Far from it. But this is an album you've got to listen to over and over again. And I, and I, 
I lack your experience and um, things th things will hit me as, as I play it again, which I will, because I, I'm really hooked on it. And um, I'll hear different things and I'll see different things. And, you know, I look forward to that. How about you, Mark? So I, I've spent quite a lot of the last uh, 30 odd years going, oh, bloody old Rich is going on about Rush again. <laughs> and now I get it. I've I, before we started recording this, I said to you guys, I would have to be it, it would have to be a hell of a track to score a ten for me. Limelight, um, I have scored at nine point nine. It is by quite some distance my favourite track on this album. As I said, it it it, it actually. Every time I hear it, it moves me. However, what I would say is that as we've been recording this and we've been listening to it, my scores for a lot of the other tracks have changed because every time I listen to this album, I hear something new every single time. And and I come away from every listen thinking, hmm, yeah, probably that's the weakest link. And then I listen to it again. And I think that's not weak at all. So the lowest score, <laughs> and I'm looking at it now thinking that's wrong, but <laughs> as things stand, um, Vital Signs is my lowest at eight, um, and my highest is Limelight. I just think this is an outstanding album. Rich, is there any point in asking you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really I'm just I'm so glad that you've you both enjoyed this which is what was this is what our evenings and and now these podcasts are, are all about now I, I was trying to I, I in the end had to be it it would have been I wouldn't have given every given everything a 10 to start with my two standouts remain on this album those two those two tracks I heard um Red, Red Boschetta and Limelight I, I just think they are they are perfect, perfect songs. It's lovely that you're seeing the you, you, the, the, the the phrasing. The I'm like they said, Red Barchetta, the going out for a drive, um, meeting a couple of cars, having a race, managing to lose them, and as you say, that the, the fade out at the end is for me coming back home and just just to, pootling up the the uh, the drive and uh, and and putting the, the the car back in the in the garage. So I think that those for all of all of what we discussed, those two remain my my favourites. Then the camera eye, I've I've just always loved it. It's a it's it it's an epic. It's ten minutes, but it's just I I I I love that. For me, yeah, it's probably if if there's one that's slightly not quite in the stratosphere of the others, it's it's between witch hunt and vital signs. But it's not neither. I still think they're brilliant tracks. It's just the company they're keeping is unbelievable. Originally, I thought Witch Hunt. Go and listen to the end of it again. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's what I said. Every time I listen to it, my view of it changes. For every every well, with the exception of Limelight, which I fell in love with the first time I heard it. It every time I I hear this album there's something new and it, and i hear something new and every score just ramps up a little bit more yeah. and it's yeah it's a great album it's a great album this is the enter sad men podcast every rock and metal album you should own reviewed rated and ranked so there you go enter sad men 
podcast two, done and dusted. We've had our uh, we've had our three favourite albums, and we move on to uh, podcast three, which will be the next one. And we are going to look at the great men of rock, the godfathers of rock, the three bands who were who were there from the start. We're going to look at uh, Led Zeppelin and their historic album Led Zeppelin Four. We're going to look at Deep Purple, Machine Head, and we're going to look at Black Sabbath and Paranoid, three monsters of rock in in every sense. And uh, we look forward to your company. Yeah.